Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Victor's Children on the politics of war from Ukraine to Canada. And I'd just like to uh, ask my two guests for this episode to introduce themselves. Hi, my name's Drew Jay. I'm the uh, publisher of The Breach, and I'm the executive director of uh, a community te- university television in Montreal. And I uh, germane to this conversation. I've ri- uh, co-written a book uh, called Paved with Good Intentions about Canada's uh, development NGOs abroad. Yes. Um, hi, I'm Olina, and I am an editor at Midnight Sun, but also at Left East and just published with a lot of help from others and conversation with others, uh, a piece called On the Frontier of Whiteness um, on the War in Ukraine. Um, and I'm a PhD candidate at York University, and I studied the, the post-socialist transition or post-Soviet transition, rather, um, and women's work. And before we dig into the episode, uh, I would like to just tell listeners that Midnight Sun magazine is currently running a fun drive. Uh, and like Alina, I'm an editor of, of Midnight Sun. So at midnightsunmag.ca, you'll find the articles that we've been publishing now for just over a year. And Midnight Sun tries to give articles quite a lot of uh, editorial attention. So we try to help writers to uh, develop their ideas and express them in the most effective and, and eloquent way that they, they can. We pay writers uh, to the best of our ability. And so um, there's a cost associated with running this that might not be visible to people who are, are reading articles at, at Midnight Sun, um, both because we have to pay a, a, an editor on a part-time basis and because we, we pay writers. So anything that you can contribute um, on an ongoing basis through Patreon or as a one-off donation would be most welcome. You can just go to midnightsunmag.ca to support our fund drive. I think David said it all, but I just want to add that... Um, uh, we try to engage uh, writers who are organizing, who are on the ground, who are activists and organizers, as I said. And so uh, we try to support voices that maybe haven't been heard, haven't been forefronted as much. So um, that's really cool, I think. And our pieces so far have uh, really engaged with uh, radical thinking around trans- transfor- transformation in Canada and beyond and globally. So. Please support us. Yeah, we, we try to have a strategic focus to what we do. We want to explore the question of what is to be done in different ways, but we also publish poetry and other kind of reflective pieces um, on, on things that might be emerging in, in organizing and activist experiences. So uh, please do what you can to support us. No amount is too small. So our topic today is uh, the politics of war from Ukraine to Canada and, you know, mainstream media media in Canada and other Western countries is continuing to paint a very simplistic picture of the war in Ukraine as a war of good guys against bad guys, with brave good Ukrainians fighting to defend their good democratic society 
against the armed forces of Putin's bad regime in Russia. Now, on Russia itself, uh, in the, on the March 2022 episode of Victor's Children, I discussed Russian society with Simon Pirani. So if you're interested in that, I suggest you check it out if you haven't heard it already. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about Ukrainian society, starting by talking about Ukraine before the war. And I should just say that for anyone who wants to follow up, uh, there'll be links in the show notes to things that both Drew and Alina uh, have written, but also other articles too. So I'd like to start with you, Alina, uh, in your article on the frontier of whiteness, expropriation, war, and social reproduction in Ukraine, which was published on Left East. You wrote about several aspects of Ukrainian society before the invasion that are just generally not at all understood by people in the West. So can you start by talking about the neoliberal so-called reforms that have been inflicted on people in Ukraine over the past three decades? Yes. So in the article, I really focused um, on 2014 onwards, but of course, um, the, the Ukrainian working people have experienced kind of the slow and depressing uh, three decades of class decomposition, immiseration, and depopulation, which importantly, uh, this, this whole process has shaped their new position, I think, as working class vis-a-vis -vis Europe and to an extent North America, right, as cheap migrant labor. And that's kind of the focus of my, um, of my piece. Um, but of course, <clears throat> It was first the shock therapy reforms and then the more sophisticated kind of institutional reforms, neoliberal reforms that ha ha have led to some very bad demographic indicators in Ukraine as part of like the overall post-Soviet space. <clears throat> so post-Soviet Ukraine's industrialized economy, public infrastructure and skilled labor force underwent, I would argue, a period of primitive accumulation through the neoliberal shock therapy reforms. Uh, forming its own sort of flavor uh, of the capitalist state um, that can be defined as neoliberal kleptocracy. And, and this term is not my own, of course. Um, uh, you can read both Volodymyr Ishenko, but also Yulia Yurchenko's work on this um, in a really good article from 2019. It's called Ukrainian Capitalism and Inter-Imperial Rivalry. They write that this new capitalist class was composed of Neo nomenclatura and capitalists in the in the making, you know, who were kind of who came from um, the cr criminal political nexus and the Soviet Ukrainian Komsomol. <laughs> but first of all, um, I guess we should I should sort of address what what are shock therapy reforms? Um, they are known to be kind of structural adjustment loans from financial institutions such as the IMF, uh, sorry, international financial institutions, and um, with conditions that restructure the more state-led economies um, towards kind of a greater market imperative. Um, so privatization of uh, previously uh, nationalized industry, resources, institutions, um, what we call precarization and impoverishment of the public sector and public-private partnerships and so on. Um, and so let me emphasize too that it is not the withdrawal of the state from the market, <laughs> um, this kind of simplistic, right? No, it's it's the restructuring of state institutions towards capital accumulation at the expense of households, social reproduction, and what we call um, like life making. But I want to say a little bit more that these shock therapy reforms in Ukraine and of course in other post-Soviet states like Russia, but perhaps um, playing out a little bit differently. Uh, so these shock therapy reforms were about the restructuring, right, of the relationship between the political and the economic um, kind of state and capital. And I would emphasize them 
as primitive accumulation, so forced violent expropriation of working of working people. And, and the assumption is that neoliberalism kind of comes in the Western clean form, right? Um, but in my view, that's a very false. And, and so the transitology studies, right? Transitioning from one to the other. Um, I think it's a very false assumption. Um, we find that both productive and established kind of accumulation under the legal form of contract between capital and free labor has always been accompanied by violent expropriation in the sphere of social reproduction um, formulated in laws and, and public policies, right, uh, by the state. So in this process, the Soviet state, I think, acted both as the object and the tool of primitive accumulation, where, as Marx writes, uh, the law itself became an instrument of theft, you know, and the institutional infrastructure of the state, um, in a way, provided a subsidy to its capitalist successors, right? Uh, state-owned enterprises and the public sphere directly transformed um, into the kind of private sources of income. Um, um, and, and I guess opposite to, the, to, to a view of like a disintegrating state um, uh, that we kind of heard in the West, I think, um, but also you know, back home, these kind of liberal views, um, well, I think the state was kind of, <laughs> the state was eating it itself from the inside actively, you know. Um, so this materialized um, in, in things like uh, foreign direct investment regulations um, um, and kind of uneven implications for accumulation by bo uh, both domestic and foreign capital, uh, creation of uh, special economic zones, um, uh, development areas that, that were prioritized and also um, kind of state purchasing and abuse of procedure, uh, state asset investment and so on, right? So um, um, in, in practice, these were labor market reforms, pension reform, healthcare reform, education reforms. And, you know, I can go on, um, you know, in terms of occupational health and safety, for instance, deregulation to the point where accidents caused at work um, by like working conditions where the employer was really responsible, no, no longer obliging the employer to pay the fine to the worker. So I think I'll stop there. Um, but I can say more later, um, especially after 2014. Yeah, I would just add, I mean, to, uh, to Elena's sort of um, more nuanced analysis, I would just add some, some sort of big picture numbers. Like there were over 2 million people um, left Ukraine in the sort of post-Soviet uh, period. Um, like I think up to like 2.7 million people. There were, you know, the Lancet found that you know, certainly hundreds of thousands of premature deaths in Ukraine resulted um, from the, the neoliberal restructuring and the shock therapy and, and probably millions um, of, of premature deaths um, happened as a result. Um, so you have this and, and you know, and that includes sort of, um, um, you know, uh, Bert the um, infant mortality rates going up. So, you know, literally, um, you know, tens of thousands of dead children, basically, as a result of these neoliberal restructuring. So, so I don't think we can underestimate the, the sort of violence um, that was carried out in that, in that post-Soviet period. And, and that was directly backed by, by Canada uh, through the, the international institutions like the IMF and so on. And, and that po those policies have been pretty much continuous um, since, you know, 89. Um, so, so you really have a, um, a, a policy of, of violence on a mass scale toward people in Ukraine 
um, that that's been ongoing for that entire period. I think that's that that as the sort of backdrop to to what sort of happens next is is really important. Yeah, and I just wanted to add to um, to what um, Drew has said um, in terms of like the demographic, uh, you know, measures of well being. That's what Godsey and Ornstein call. Uh, these effects, right? Um, that, of course, these effects, these reforms had um, especially negative impact on women, right? And um, kind of the decline of social citizenship, um, a part of which was the social wage and the introduction of market imperative economic insecurity really resulted, like, like Drew said, in the dramatic decrease of life expectancy at birth. And, you know, in 2014, the World Health Organization concluded that the health of people in the former Soviet countries deteriorated, deteriorated sorry, uh, dramatically after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, the, and, and in the 2010 UNDP uh, research paper also suggested that, uh, you know, um, there was an epidemic, the, the excess deaths in the former Soviet countries uh, kind of reflected an epidemic of heart and circulatory diseases, as well as a dramatic increase in homicide and, and, and suicide among work, working age men. Um, so these are these numbers are really kind of terrifying also uh, that, that, that Drew brought up. But, um, but I think we need to also emphasize how the policy of cutting jobs in health um, education, social services sector, which primarily employed women, um, they constituted, you know, up to 80% of the total number of employees, of course, um, this, this was uh, freezing wages or recruitment, um, kind of part of these macroeconomic policy suggestions by uh, international financial institutions, um, they are kind of responsible for, uh, for the demographic uh, decline and 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 really like impoverishment of working class people. Could you uh, focus a little bit on the question of who actually was responsible for these reforms in the sense of to what extent are we talking international financial institutions, Western governments, the capitalist class in Ukraine? Because I think sometimes uh, when people talk about this, only one um, aspect of that might be highlighted. So can we talk about how they all work together? Yeah, I'll try. <laughs> um, well, I think that Yes, I think that we need to emphasize also the as I, as I was saying earlier, like um, the active, you know, primitive uh, accumulation by the state of the state, um, in a sense. But um, as as um, Ishimko and Yurchenko write in 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 the piece, um, really it was also a fight kind of between different factions of say new capital. In, in Ukraine, right? But um, in, in with in their interaction with international financial institutions like the IMF and the World Bank, but also lobby groups such as the European Business Association, uh, what else? Uh, American Chamber of, of Congress, uh, Commerce, sorry, <laughs> um, and and the Center of U.S.-Ukraine Relations, um, U.S.-Ukraine Business Council. Drew probably can say much more about Canada as well, and you know. Recently, like according to leaked documents, and we can talk about this later on about the the labor law reform, right? That's kind of on on, on the news now in Ukraine. But um, according to leaked documents, also since September 2020, the UK government um, through the British Foreign Office um, and the UK aid and the UK embassy in in Kiev. Um, 
was funding and advising on the drafts of the new Ukrainian labor legislation. Um, so these are drafts uh, 5388 and 5371, um, which aimed at, you know, like liberalization, further liberalization of the Soviet era labor law. So these are the kinds of um, actors involved in, in, in this transformation. So, so my, my sense of it, and I'm curious, curious uh, how you would sort of characterize it, Elena, but um, is that you know you had the you had the shock therapy that created these mass privatizations. You had some people in Ukraine who sort of became the oligarchs by gobbling up or finding investors and leveraging their positions to 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 get control of these sort of formerly state-owned enterprises um, and at sort of bargain basement prices. And then they became tremendously the sort of disproportionately politically powerful within the country. Um, <clears throat> And I think this, it seems like this happened in parallel in Russia as well, which is pretty much, there's a direct line from that to Putin being, you know, president for life, basically. Um, but, um, but, but in Ukraine, yeah, you had, you had the sort of privatization creates the oligarchs, the oligarchs are then sort of, uh, you know, have their own interests in terms of accumulating wealth, um, and, and controlling the sort of political system, but they work sort of alternate, alternately in tandem with the sort of privatizing impulses of the IMF and the international financial institutions driven by the US mainly, who are sort of imposing this economic structure. So they're both benefiting from that and feeding into it, but at the same time, you know, pursuing their own interests. And 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 obviously there's there's now some sort of tension around the edges, is my understanding, is that they, you know, because they benefit from such a high level of corruption in the country and the IMF and you know the the EU and the other sort of international actors that are trying to turn Ukraine into this sort of respectable capitalist rational investor friendly state. Yeah, as uh, if that are, exists are, are annoyed anywhere. with that that <laughs> level of corruption. Um but but at the same time they're sort of still pointed in generally the same direction. But 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 I would be curious to hear your sort of take on that. Sorry, I was interrupting you in my anger. Uh, but I I um yeah like I always get angry at these ideas of like well like respectable liberal democracy, you know? It's like okay uh does that really i mean does that really exist i mean i think that again we cannot really speak about i don't know i think we cannot really speak about these pure forms versus mixed regimes versus i think it's capital in the, and the capitalist state in in each kind of historical context right but nonetheless very much um playing a role within global capitalism so just as today say the EU or the US are trying to create a respectable quotation marks uh, like capitalist class or state and uh, in, in Ukraine, um, it, it's they also who were, were <laughs> uh, facilitating, right? Um, in, in relation and also just like in cahoots with the uh, kind of fighting capitalist um, factions in, in Ukraine that, that really brought the system in practice in the first place, right? So it's a strange uh, juxtaposition, I think, and dichotomy, you know, this pure versus mixed forms or um, good versus bad or like corrupt or non-corrupt capitalism, you know. Um, I think this requires more more study um, and more research, um, yeah. Um, and where today, like... At what point does does uh, the West support kind of corrupt versions, and at what points it, it kind of uh, 
fights against them or like challenges them. It's a very strange, very strange thing for me and, and really makes me angry <laughs> because um, again, I, I just think about the relationship between like sort of surplus value extraction versus like expropriation, you know? And I think those two are never really far from each other, you know? Could you say something about migration uh, from Ukraine uh, in the years before the invasion, which again, I think many people in North America um, are not so familiar with? Yeah, I think in like other Eastern Europeans in the 90s or like late 80s and 90s, um, a lot of Ukrainians, um, especially women, Ukrainian mothers and grandmothers have been working as, um, you know, migrant domestic workers, leaving their families behind, cleaning homes of richer Europeans and like Americans, Canadians, kind of doing a lot of social reproductive work, um, also sex work um, um, in the West. And, you know, as I write in the article too, this was my mother too in Toronto when we arrived here in the early 2000s. Um, but since 2014, um, there has been a dramatically larger number of Ukrainians um, kind of mobilized as cheap social reproductive labor, uh, remitting much of their income to cover the gaps in state provision at home and compensate for the damage of war and militarization. So in 2020, the number of Ukrainians living abroad uh, was estimated, um, I think, at, at between two, like over 2 million, almost 3 million uh, people. Um, so that's like maybe 13, 16% of total employment in the country. Um, and Ukraine is the world's 10th largest recipient of uh, remittances. Um, and in 2020, this formed almost 10% of the country's GDP. So, um, I mean, they bypassed um, like $19 billion uh, in, in 2021. Um, and, and remittances have contributed to about like 50-60% um, of the recipient household budgets. Um, and in comparison to households that are not receiving remittances, um, people really have relied um, on remittances for education, for food. So really like just like surviving, but also, in fact, um, you know, filling the gaps of state provision that, that is lacking, you know, um, or like housing um, um, education and so on. Um, but so whereas in Ukraine, the, the costs of social reproduction have been offloaded onto the households uh, that prepare workers to be sent abroad. Um, in the EU countries, uh, the arriving Ukrainian labor power is in a sense cost-free. It's paid for by the past labor of households like in, in Ukraine, right? Um, and communities and infrastructure, but also its ongoing renewal in the EU or in Canada and the US as, as migrant workers is so cheap because a lot of them are excluded from state benefits um, and like social citizenship at large. And parallel to then as, as more working people in Ukraine are uh, relying on the income from remittances, you have the militarization of Ukrainian society, um, which, Alina, you wrote about taking place since 2014 when civil war broke out in the east of the country. And I think the militarization has received even less attention than migration in mainstream media. So um, could you tell listeners a bit about what that's been like since 2014 up to the actual Russian invasion in 2022? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I think that 
they are, as you as you've pointed out, like uh, David, that they are the militarization neoliberal reforms are sort of married, you know, here together. Um, uh, you know, the militarization since 2014 has been coupled with neoliberal reforms, right? Like aimed at facilitating, I think, the growth of capital at the expense of, of the reproduction of working class households. Um, and, and the state, since 2014, the state has really institutionalized dramatically lower uh, costs of social reproduction. So, um, um, you know, I traced how, in in a sense, it's it's militarization has been tied to austerity measures, um, displacing the burdens of resisting Russian aggression and kind of preparing uh, the state for um, a very highly unequal process of Euro-Atlantic integration onto the households. So, in a sense. It's like, well, we are we need to militarize and defend the country. Therefore, uh, you know, prices are going to go up or therefore we're going to privatize more um, educational facilities or we're going to close them down. Therefore, healthcare will become more like the healthcare reform. Right. It'll become more expensive, less accessible um, and so on. So it, the, the militarization is it, it kind of is um, it justifies, you know, the sacrifice. Of, of the nation for for the victory, you know, um, and and so on. So it's it's a really convenient way to to dispossess more people, right? So the cost of national security spending um, quadrupled in the last decade, right? Um, uh, again, women absorb. As, as I kind of emphasize always, is that the women absorb the cuts to the social wage and the public sector. Again, um, international financial institutions like the IMF. Have placed, you know, very strict limits on social spending, with um, again significant implications for women, like elimination of fuel subsidies, um, causing higher prices for gas, um, for heating, electricity, and transportation. Um, spending to uh, cuts to spending on healthcare, on education, on child assistance benefits, um, and the major reform of the pension system. So. Starting in 2005, in 2015, the decommunization laws, um, which were sort of at the kind of people would say cultural and language level, right? They, but they also banned communist political parties and symbols, renamed Soviet era cities, and etc. While, while at the same time, they were also extended, I would argue, to, to the kind of modernization and Europeanization of what little was left of the welfare state since the 90s, shock therapy reforms. Um, and of course, you know, the Ukrainian um, constitution declares Ukraine to be a welfare state. So in a sense, these reforms have been unconstitutional, really, right? And and Commons uh, journal, uh, Ukrainian journal, really good research, they, they have reported kind of on the 30 years of, of these neoliberal reforms since the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, we can also include that link later on. But in comparison, say, to 2013, in 2016, the state cut spending on healthcare by 36%, over 36%, on education, also over 36%, and on civil service by 30%. Like th- These are significant cuts, right? Um, and the economic reforms pushed by, by the IMF um, 
kind of accelerated rising inequality, of course, where 67% of Ukrainian households in 2021 um, characterized themselves as poor, <laughs> you know, uh, for the first time. That's like almost 70%, right? And this is to the point where the UN Human Rights Council issued a report in 2017 on how austerity measures have pushed, um, pushed by the IMF are really affecting Ukrainian women's, you know, human rights in quotation marks again as rights. So uh, pretty significant changes, drastic changes um, for people. But maybe I also should speak a little bit about what has been happening in the Donbass region. Also, I'm not sure if you want to hear about kind of the violence and also the dispossession of the elderly people because of these borders, new borders drawn and the militarization of the borders. Maybe you could say something briefly about that. Sure. Uh, so say in, in 2016, there was a strict control measure introduced um, by the Ukrainian government, um, which required internally displaced persons to register at an address in, in government controlled territory and basically check in every month um, to maintain pension or sorry, bi-monthly to maintain pension eligibility. So if you lived on the separatist, happen, your village or town happens to be on the separatist side of, of the Donbass, you have to travel um, basically every 60 days um, to the Ukrainian side in order to receive the Ukrainian pension, right? And these like the infrastructure for, for this travel for these borders is just like horrifying. There were so many people who died um, and, um, you know, standing under the rain, no bathrooms really provided, no facilities, long queues without shelters. Um, and this is only to get pensions that were about, you know, 90 US dollars per month, right? Um, and so the UN estimates that 400,000 people have lost access to their pensions since the 60-day rule was implemented in 2016. And uh, the Ukrainian pension fund uh, basically has accumulated a debt of 86 billion rivnes, which is about $3.5 billion owed to pensioners uh, who live in non-government-controlled areas. Thank you. Before we turn to talk about the politics as, as they've been playing out in the Canadian state, I just wanted to ask the question if you could just say something about the way that the war itself in the last number of months has affected politics in Ukraine. And, you know, Alina, you mentioned the labor law uh, yeah. reforms that have been floated. Um, so if you want to say something about that, that would be great. But just in general, to, to help people understand what forces, what political forces have been strengthened and which ones have been weakened inside Ukraine since the war began. Yeah, I, I, when I was thinking about this question, I my first thought was like, it's a simple answer. Which forces, what political forces have been strengthened in Ukraine? Well, the forces of capital, you know, um, maybe perhaps if, instead of speaking or observing kind of the rise of nationalism, right, and commenting on its implications, because every discussion on the left has been on Twitter, on Facebook, email threads, conferences, whatever has been about that. Um, I think it's it's better maybe to comment on um, how the war has become really prime context and opportunity for further neoliberal reforms. Um, but I would like to make the case that it's not a rupture, right? Uh, oh, it's war and all of a sudden like these labor reforms. Um, as I've already said, like it's not a rupture. Indeed, it's a continuity of neoliberal reforms before the invasion in February 2022, but also even before 2014. OK, so in a sense, what is happening now, there's a proposed new labor law. It's it's called Bill 
5371. I already, I think, mentioned it earlier. Um, and it was actually originally registered in April 2021. So clearly this is not oh, because of Russia's invasion today. You know, it's a year ago. And um, uh, it's basically a wartime suspension of labor law, right? Um, so, and, and the bill has been developed by Ukrainian NGO, the Office of Simple Solutions and Results, which was set up by for, former Georgian president, um, Michael Saakashvili, together with um, Ukrainian employers associations and uh, US aid program. And, and the law basically is supposed to de-Sovietize, de-communize, de-Sovietize, whatever you want to use um, as your term, the outdated labor code, you know, that now governs kind of Ukrainian um, labor relations, uh, which was um, adopted in 1971. Um, and uh, this, this is really draconian, really bad um, curtailment of, of employees' rights, um, uh, you know, in, in terms of sick leave or vacation pay, um, the, the working week increased from 40 hours to 60 shorter holidays. Um, but, but moreover, it's, um, basically those, um, kind of small and medium sized firms, which have less than 250 employees, would it in fact, in effect, would be basically removed from, from the existing labor law um, cover and, and now covered by individual contracts negotiated with the employer. So more than 70% of the Ukrainian labor force would be, um, sorry, workforce would be affected by this change, right? And, um, um, and at the same time, one very interesting point here is one of the more controversial uh, ones is the ability to involve women in, in physically strenuous labor and work underground in mines, for example, uh, which is currently both prohibited by the Ukrainian labor laws, uh, but also um, a could be a violation of the ILO organization 45th convention. Um, yeah, and, and again, um, to bring this back to kind of the the international or the, the global forces at play here and perhaps gesture to some questions about imperialism and what that means in Ukraine today and that maybe we need to think more about that. Um, it's, you know, the British Foreign Office, as I said, was kind of embroiled in this, um, in this scandal over advice and really pushing for this new labor legislation through Parliament. Well, maybe we could turn now to talk about the way the war has affected politics in the Canadian state. And we can ask the same question about which political forces have been strengthened by the war. Uh, Drew, could you start us off on that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think, as you said earlier, the, the intense sort of polarization of sort of views, you know, toward, toward the sort of Manichaean good guys, bad guys narrative is, is really is really the sort of dominant political theme. Um, I mean, and I think it extends to, you know, if you say anything that 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 disagrees basically with the you know the official U.S. Canadian sort of line, then you sort of you risk being being accused of of repeating Russian propaganda basically. Um, and at the same time, if you if you try to be selective in what you support among the Canadian state, like it's very difficult to in in terms of like uh, you know weapons transfers or aid or or anything like that it's kind of an all or nothing deal like you you either support it all or you're with the enemy and so i think 
I think the sort of a key task is carving out space uh, where we can actually just like think about things without sort of immediately falling into one of these two sort of categories. Um, and and in that context, um, the people, the the forces that have been sort of um, empowered by this are are pretty clearly the military spending first and foremost. I mean, uh, on you know within Canada certainly. Uh, with, within Europe to even even greater extent and uh, and to a massive extent in the U.S., you see these spikes in military spending, and most of that is going to like super expensive weaponry, um, much of which is just not relevant at all to the to the Ukraine conflict, and is is more about creating this this bigger this bigger military industrial complex and just funneling money uh, to to these forces. Um, and then at the same time, you have um, oil companies. Obviously, you have massive increase in in oil prices of late as pretty much a direct result of the of Putin's invasion um and so you have Suncor and and other um companies showing like tripled profits um so so it's empowering them politically and financially and then you have the sort of corporate price gouging uh and commodity speculation um that's that's also pretty much a direct result of i mean of of a, a variety of sort of converging factors uh but certainly the the invasion is is a big one of them um and so yeah consumer prices uh for for basic needs including housing including food um and other sort of necessities has 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 gone up uh which of course effectively take disempowers financially and politically the the people who are uh, at the sort of bottom end of the of the economic pyramid, uh, but empowers the sort of shareholder class and uh, hedge funds and so on. Um, and then, of course, I think within Ukraine certainly, um, but but I but I think that there's an echo of that here is is that the, the sort of far right has been uh, empowered as well in the sense that there's sort of you know you sort of see this kind of ongoing attempt to rehabilitate um, these sort of neo-Nazi groups as legitimate actors in one way or another, uh, or to downplay their sort of their actual worldview. Um, and uh, and I think that that has an effect here. And and, and you have, to an unknown extent, uh, you have far-right groups, you know, probably sending, sending over, um, you know, participating in various ways and sort of mobilizing for the war, but also sending over people as volunteers, getting... Um, I don't know what kind of military training we like. We don't know all the things going on behind the scenes, but it's safe to say that on a broad level, the far right has been here in Canada as well, sort of empowered to some extent, uh, both financially and politically uh, by by the by the conflict. So so really, some of the worst the worst actors and the, and the people we'd least like to see empowered uh, and subsidized are are being empowered and subsidized. Maybe I could just ask you to uh, pick up on the thread about climate politics in relation to this. You mentioned Suncor, um, but any thoughts about the, the kind of broader implications um, about how these things will affect efforts to actually decarbonize and advance a climate justice agenda? Yeah, it's a, it's a massive setback. I mean, I think I think if we had a strong left um, and a and a you know, I think we we would be able to say things like, oh, like the are are we too dependent on Russian gas and oil, um, and is that you know is is Russia able to like cause like spiraling inflation and uh and an, and an economic recession uh, oh maybe that means that we should have a international green new deal that that creates you know massive infrastructure spending uh to move us collectively away from 
uh, fossil fuel consumption. Um, maybe it means building millions of, of heat pumps and, and sending them to, you know, electric, electrical heat pumps and sending them to, to Europe so that some portion of their heating and cooling can happen uh, through something other than natural gas. You know, all, the, all the, these kinds of things uh, could be proposals that could be on the table, but they're not. I think it's really notable that they're not. And, and, the, and policymakers are reaching very quickly for, oh, let's, um, <laughs> let's get oil wherever we can get it. Let's drill more uh, at home and so on. Um, even though the oil companies seem reticent to do that um, because they're just enjoying their high prices, um, I think policymakers have, you know, and, and the sort of people in power have, have really gravitated toward, oh, we need more domestic oil supply. Which is, of course, anathema to any kind of like the generational uh, project <laughs> that that we're that we're faced with of you know reducing and, and very quickly eliminating most fossil fuel use. Um, so yeah, it heads in the exact opposite direction, um, and there there hasn't really been a strong reply, even from the climate movement, to say like, look, the the solution to uh, Putin having this much power. And, and, and really the solution to stopping him <laughs> from uh, from conducting this illegal, you know, atrocious war uh, is to, you know, move the world off of fossil fuels as quickly as possible. That really hasn't been um, hasn't been raised, unfortunately. And one other follow up question uh, for you, and that's about uh, the response of uh, the NDP and maybe in, you could say something about Quebec Solidaire in Quebec, if you have any thoughts about that, but just as the largest organizations uh, identified with the left, what kind of a response uh, we've seen there? Um, yeah, I'll f- focus on the NDP because uh, I'm more familiar with them. But, you know, the NDP has been, I would say, since Sven Robinson was removed as the sort of foreign affairs critic, I think around, it uh, must have been 05, 06, you really have had a, a series of foreign affairs critics with the NDP who have been, you know, more or less in line with the foreign policy establishment in Canada. You haven't really seen them step out very much. Um, and I think the the notable exception was when the, the members against all odds passed a resolution in support of Palestine. And, and the, you saw the party sort of switch tracks a little bit on that in line with public opinion, certainly. But that was a, that was a huge multi, that was a decade long, at least fight to, to, to even get them to do that. Um, but otherwise you if you look at Heather McPherson's sort of statements and, and, and her sort of predecessor statements, you see a lot of, we should be doing more kind of stuff. Like even before Russia's invasion, you saw, um, you saw a lot of like, oh, we should invest more in helping train the military in Ukraine. We should help. Um, we should, we should do these, these various things. And, and without a lot of critical capacity, certainly not a lot of criticism of the military industrial complex and the sort of, you know, the real horrors that that unleashes. I mean, I think, I think we just, uh, we just as a sort of mild digression, we have to, you know, just look at the news from the US and, and in the, with all these sort of mass shootings happening. Um, that's a direct result of militarizing a society and, and empowering, you know, military contractors as like a primary mover of politics. Um, you know, the NRA was, was, and gun culture was created to like fill the, fill the need for, uh, for a market for all these firearms in between wars and, and the sort of repeal of, uh, assault weapons bans or regulations and the, and the, and the, and the political sort of allergy to any kind of regulation of, of, of weapons that's resulting in these just absolute horrors, you know, in the U S 
and to some extent in Canada, um, you know, as a direct result of, of empowering those people. So, so when we talk about who, when, when we think about the policies that we're going to support with whatever power we have, I think we have to take that into account, um, you know, the sort of increases in military spending and, and what a poison that is uh, to, to our society, to our social fabric, uh, to, our, to our political sphere. Uh, and, and and everything. I mean, um, you know, we can we can we can talk about the sort of subtleties of like, oh, should we support this kind of weapons transfer to Ukraine or or not support this other kind or or whatever? I think I think that there are you know really important discussions to be had there. But a a it's just not on the table institutionally uh, in Canada. Although you know if you if you go down the line, you'll see like if you look at QP, you know, or some of the big unions have statements basically saying. You know, we support de-escalation. We support um, measures toward toward peace. I mean, we can debate whether that's even you know to what extent that's possible. But you know, you have you have a bit a bit of that, and certainly around the fringes of the NDP, certainly not people in any kind of official critic position are are taking like some decent positions. There's been criticism of international financial institutions and their orientation toward toward Ukraine. Certainly, uh, from someone like Nikki Ashton, you've seen um, you've, you've seen a few a, a few other groups sort of. Be, be critical in various ways and maintain maintain an independence of thought, which is encouraging. But um, but the the core of the party is uh, is not that. Anything you'd like to add to that, Alina? Yeah, I think one of the toughest questions is if we take ourselves seriously in the U.S. and Canada um, in terms of our calls to defund or to abolish the police, then how do we connect this? part of our organizing um, and our even normative orientation, right, um, and critique to m- increased military spending. What happens after the fact, after the war? And how, if we are internationalists, how will this increased militarization, you know, in Ukraine, but also by these arms companies, basically, but also in the US, Canada, and Germany, how will that play out for other movements for self-determination, both against settler colonialism here, but also elsewhere, like in Yemen or Palestine and other conflicts? So I think this is one of the you know toughest questions for leftists today. Thanks for, for that. Um, I do want to say just something briefly about what has happened in terms of activity in support of Ukraine within the Canadian context. And it seems to me that it's been generally dominated by the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress as an organization, certainly in Winnipeg, when the rallies have happened, that's been pretty clear. Um, this Now, people listening may or may not know that the Ukrainian-Canadian community has historically been divided or was historically di- divided on a very clear kind of left-right political basis. Um, and the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress is a right-wing organization, but it claims to be the representative of all Ukrainian Canadians. It's much now, now much, much larger and more influential than the remnants of the left uh, in the community represented by the Association of United Ukrainian Canadians, which in the past historically supported the USSR. Although as an aside, I'll mention there were also uh, from the late 1960s anti-Stalinist left-wing Ukrainian Canadians uh, active. And I'll put an article in the show notes about some of their experience. Uh, but the, the UCC uh, has certainly been, I think, very successful in positioning itself um, uh, around uh, shaping whatever kinds of popular responses there are going to be uh, people who are moved to do something in support of Ukraine. Uh, 
And so you have rallies where you would have, you know, right-wing Tory politicians speaking along with, with others. And here in, in Winnipeg, uh, when uh, people attempted to chant no war, so people chanted no war, they were drowned out by people chanting no fly zone, um, you know, which at that time was the, uh, you know, the call that was coming from from UCC, or at least from a lot of the right-wing nationalists, uh, which of course amounted to a call for Western military intervention directly into, you know, into the war. Um, so that I think has been pr- pretty clear. Unfortunately, you know, there hasn't been any kind of significant visible uh, left solidarity uh, activity um, on, you know, that's been able to have much of an impact as far as I can see um, in terms of trying to give people who want to do something to support Ukrainians under attack uh, an alternative. Let's move to the question of, of the left in so-called Canada, because as I see it, I mean, we have a war of Ukrainian self-defense in Ukraine, right, led by a neoliberal government against Russian imperialism. Uh, but then that war is entangled in the conflict between Western imperialism led by the U.S. and organized through NATO uh, and Russia on the other side. So here we have Western ruling class deciding with Ukraine and trying to use the war to weaken Russia, all with an eye on the West's more powerful rival, China. So in that context, then, what should the left in so-called Canada be doing in relation to the war and the politics around the war here? So in terms of what the left could could or should be doing, I think that there are, there are a lot of nuanced positions, you know, regarding things like, um, you know, weapons transfers and so on that, that we can and should sort of take positions on. But I think the, 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 the way that the left can be powerful, the way that the left can exert itself in a way that is consequential uh, is to, is to, is to have, um, you know, a very, very clear and unambiguous position uh, that, that pushes in a particular direction uh, and that has a lot of moral force behind it. Um, So, and I, and I think in, in the context of Ukraine, um, the, the thing that I would really focus on would be the, uh, the debt um, that, that Ukraine has been saddled with, uh, you know, not, certainly since the beginning of the war, uh, but going all the way back to 1989 uh, and the sort of odious conditions uh, and the violence that's that has been implemented uh, with that debt as the sort of key leverage uh, for for those those just horribly destructive policies. And I think the more we can sort of educate people about how devastating uh, the, these economic policies have been in Ukraine over over those decades, the more we can sort of use what I think is fundamentally like a, a an upwelling of goodwill toward people in Ukraine to to bring people closer to the reality of what's of what's going on. You know, so instead of it just being like waving the flag and um, you know standing for Zelensky or whatever it is, like instead of that saying like, okay, well if you like let let yeah let's take that seriously, let's really care about um people in 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 ukraine and and let's drop the debt uh and let's never do that to any other country ever again and then that would create a sort of stepping stone in my view to to some to something bigger like okay let's get off fossil fuels so that we can completely disempower uh the petro oligarchic regime in in russia uh that's driving this whole thing and create a a world where you know we we don't have those kinds of of wars whether they're started by Russia or Saudi Arabia or the US or Canada for that matter. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. And I think that point about there being a lot of, um, you know, genuine popular sympathy that um, we need to relate to and that the way that the uh, campaign around the debt would actually provide a really good way of doing that because it allows us to, um, you know, expose as people learn more about what's going on, you know, why, why is the 
why is the Canadian government not supporting this, right? Um, what kind of questions does this raise about people who claim to be friends of Ukraine at this time? Um, that that kind of campaign would have a, a lot of potential. But as you say, for the for the left to actually have an influence that's you know disproportionately large, it has to start with clarity. Uh, and there does have to be a clarity of ideas about understanding the situation. And, and I think that for quite understandable reasons, people have not been focused on understanding Russian imperialism, right, if in this part of the world. Um, and so some, some sections of the left, I think, have been not sure how to respond precisely because of a focus previously solely on on the imperialism that we're directly, you know, living under and and not thinking about how um, it's part of global capitalism, which has now more than one imperialist um, center, if you like. So I think that um, there's a connection between the the a lack of you know clarity on on that side of things and our relative ineffectiveness, although it's of course, more broadly connected to the weakness of the left. But I do think that analytical uh, clarity is one part of the problem. Alina, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I mostly agree. And I think that this is a really good way of like the sort of dropping, you canceling Ukraine's foreign debt is a real good way of looking at Ukraine's self-determination in a real sense, you know, like expanded beyond the liberal use of self-determination, which was, you know, like a very revolutionary concept, you know, um, before in the early 20th century, but it would really bring it back to the material, uh, real material kinds of effects on people's lives, right? Uh, not just uh, kind of at the level of liberal democracy. So, um, so this would also include um, a critique of, of the capitalist state in Ukraine, I think, um, and the way in which it has dispossessed the Ukrainian peoples um, as well before the war and during the war and, and continues to, you know, I think this is a very important part of, of, um, of, of this conversation. Um, at the same time, there should have been an arms embargo on Russia. Um, and this whole time throughout since 2014, of course, all kinds of trade has been, you know, continued between the the Western uh, government states and and Russia in terms of the military, as well. So um, I think that's an important one that hasn't really been floating around. Like I haven't really heard much on this front. So and then of course the fossil fuels question, the green transition, which would really challenge the European states as well and their dependence on Russia and their relationship with Russia, right? Um, and at the same time, I think we need a better, as you said, David, just now, a better understanding of Russian imperialism um, in relation to, say, the U.S. empire of global capital um, and understanding that the Russian state really is becoming, you know, has is at least has fascistic tendencies, let's put it that way today, and they're growing. And... Um, and it's supporting all kinds of horrible regimes around the world, both in the global north and global south, including like the Wagner group people uh, waging wars, etc., all over the world. Right. So um, I think that we need a rethinking of Russian imperialism um, today um, in terms of research, like at the level of 
like sort of the academy, the thought, but also I think in terms of um, it's, it's, you know, somewhat neo-colonial uh, in some ways, um, tendencies and, and, and relations um, in, in the global South. And so there needs to be, I think in Canada, what I've encountered during this, this, this last few months is on the left and especially older, you know, people in, on the Canadian left who are, really struggling to to understand that even Putin's regime today and Putin's Russia today is a rupture from the Soviet past. And however critical we are of the Soviet past, nonetheless, it's an even further, you know, like it's a rupture. And I think for a lot of people, it's a continuity. And somehow he's presented as this um, as this defender of uh, and, you know, anti-colonial, anti-Western imperialism struggles. Um, and I think we really need to challenge this idea over and over. And I, um, I, I've been trying to do that. So, yes, so critique of Russian imperialism um, is, is very important. Yeah. Yeah. And as part of a broader challenge to the kind of uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend politics. Exactly. Um, which Barnaby Rain talked about um, on an earlier episode of Victor's Children. Any other ideas uh for the left in terms of, you know, if left forces were stronger, what kind of things would we want to do in the situation? And I think it's worth asking that question because if people can't even imagine, you know, if people have not known a stronger left, it's hard to imagine what the left might do, right? If we were in a better place than, than we are. Um, so certain ideas just don't occur to people because they've not experienced the left doing things that we could do if we were stronger. And so, you know, if we were stronger on the left, what kind of things would we be able to do or what we would want to do around something like this war? Yeah, I mean, I think to, to talk about being strong on the left, you have to talk about how to how to build, you know, mass organizations that sustain themselves over time, you know, beyond a particular horizon of, you know, mobilization or protest or political campaign or whatever. Um, and that's, you know, that's tremendously difficult. And I think, you know, when you think about how to do that, I think the, the way that one does that, um, you know, beyond a, beyond the sort of subcultural or the the sort of congenitally activist uh, among us um, is to is to have a direct impact on people's lives, um, whether that's changes in policy, changes in wages, changes in or even like, I don't know, a nourishing cultural and um, social life. Like it could be any one of those things, but but establishing any kind of foothold in the context of constant social fragmentation and uh, instant appropriation uh, of capitalism is has has proven to be a very very difficult task, and we're still working on that. But all that to say that foreign policy is even further <laughs> from from any of those things because it's not really something unless you're in the military or unless you work in an NGO or something it's not something that you ex that most people experience directly and so our experience of foreign policy is mediated through you know the media um, through corporate journalism through official statements by governments um, and so on and so I think yeah I think the the challenge when when we're trying to create popular positions, counter-hegemonic positions about foreign policy is that you have to cut through all that stuff. And that means at the very least, like a very strong independent media and the capacity for independent researchers to, to, to really understand things and, and to work things through. Um, and, 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 to, and then to crystallize that at a sort of institutional level, whether that's unions or mass organizations or parties or, or whatever, like you, you, 
you have to have that ability to have have a discussion and change people's minds <laughs> and have a debate where people shift or uh, come to some kind of consensus or at least or at least a common denominator position and then express that collectively. And yeah, it's very hard to see places where that happens. I mean, you do, you have some unions taking, as I said before, positions, but is that the result of mass discussion in union locals? I don't think so. I think that that's you know probably a discussion in a boardroom somewhere in Ottawa. And so, um, yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous challenge, but I think there's still a lot more we could do. Like even, you know, I don't know if, if a hundred people got together and we're like, I'm going to spend a few hours a month on a, um, on a, on a drop the debt campaign. I think that would have a tremendous impact on discourse in Canada. Like, I think that that even, even something as small as that, even a commitment, if it was well-coordinated and, and had sort of clear actions around it you could really shift a lot of people's perspectives and 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 create a, a shift in how how we think about solidarity with Ukraine um and Ukrainians so 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 even in the even in our weakened state i think there's a tremendous amount we could do last word to you Alina. um yeah i think the i agree with all of that i think there needs to be more exchange between the left here um in canada and ukraine and like in in the most plural sense of Ukraine and Canada, you know? Um, uh, so all kinds of positions and more debate and like more exchange. And um, I think that like being an immigrant myself, of course, I think that the there's a lot of methodological nationalism here in Canada on the left, like um, really a concern with like the welfare state restructuring um maybe the American empire and that's it, you know? And I, 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 maybe this is not very generous of me, but, but I feel like there needs to be more of an engagement in terms of understanding why the war in Ukraine matters for Canada, for instance, or for struggles for self-determination elsewhere or here or in the U S you know, and, and conceiving of really of capitalism as global um, and not just within the boundaries and borders of what we call Canada. Well, I think that was excellent. Thank you both so much. This is even better than I thought it would be. So I, I think um, I think that's a great note to end on. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com.